Hey, Angela here. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to invite you to join our Substack community, where you'll get more founder profiles, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, first access to all my original work, and access to our community group chat. All you have to do is click the link in the description. I love and appreciate your support. It's awesome to see all your comments, email responses, and reactions. I'm happy to share this journey with you. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Honey and Hustle, a video podcast that inspires the dreamers, creators, and hustlers to make a business from their passions. I'm Angela Hollowell, and I'm a visual storyteller based in Durham, North Carolina. I sit down with creative entrepreneurs, nonprofit founders, and small business owners as they share their stories, the lessons they've learned throughout their careers, and how they've worked to make a positive impact. Hey everyone, we are filming season three of the Honey and Hustle podcast live at the Durham Bottling Co. right in downtown Durham. We're about to get into a great conversation, but before we do that, I'd really appreciate it if you take a moment to share this episode with someone who you think might get some value from it. Feel free to tag me on the podcast on social media, and I'll be sure to put those links on the video and in the description below. If you're listening to the show, please consider leaving us a review on Podchaser, Apple Podcast, or Spotify. It helps others find the show and lets me know how I'm doing at this video podcast thing. If you'd like to support the show, be sure to check out our affiliate links, shop our merch, and subscribe to the Honeypot newsletter and this YouTube channel, all at the links in the description. Without further ado, let's get into it. Thank you so much for coming out here today. I really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with me on a Friday afternoon at the Durham Bottling Co. So, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. So, thanks for having me. This yeah, is great. this is a long time in the making. I feel like we are shit talking Twitter friends at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was thinking about that. I was like, man, if you know my personality only from Twitter, I'm such a shit talker on Twitter. <laughs> But we also talk about productive things yes. like Grammarly. I did get Grammarly. Um, I'm not sure how much smarter I sound via email now, but hopefully like 2%. You know, it's every, every day you got to get 2% better. Just a little improvement works. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. So Rebecca, I know a little bit about you from Twitter, yes, but also from like LinkedIn and from like your professional reputation here in the community mm-hmm. as a designer and creative director. So can you tell people who don't know a little bit about you and Miel Design Studio. Yeah, so I run Miel Design Studio, which is a small design studio that focuses on working with nonprofits, B Corps, and other purpose-driven organizations. And we're essentially full service in that we'll work on everything from like exhibit design to email design, so in person to digital. And um, we really focus on social impact work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that's very similar to what I do, except for like. I do video photo type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely do not consider myself a designer. Have I designed things? Yes. <laughs> it's not the same, though. <laughs> well, I feel like I can say that, too. I've made some videos, and I don't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. So when it comes to your business, you and other people have used this term, triple bottom line. Yeah. People, planet, and profit. So can you tell me how that has manifested in your business? Yeah, so when I, you know, I made a conscious decision to become a business owner, not just a freelancer, but like I'm going to hire employees. And um, when I made that decision, I wanted to be sure that whatever I was doing was not just, I didn't want to think about business just in terms of profit. 
at the end of the day, but um, what are we doing? How does it impact the planet? How does it impact our community? And also, like, how does it impact our team internally? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how much you know about, like, overall agency world, but in a lot of cases, it's pretty toxic. You know, mm-hmm. you work to a deadline for a client uh, nonstop, and I wanted to not only do things differently in terms of community impact and the environment, but how I ran my business for my employees, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of creating a healthy environment, what are some things that you've actually done? Like, I know for this recent set of hires, you, you're offering them health care. Mm-hmm. You're doing some things that maybe freelancers who may be coming from being a freelancer who are now in an agency environment may not be used to. So what has that looked like for you, and what, how has your, like, just kind of experience in the professional world informed that that decision to make the offerings that you make to your workers? Yeah, so healthcare is really important to me for a lot of reasons. Um, I I don't want any, you know, in the case that something happens to any of my employees, I don't want them to worry, like, am I going to have a job? If they're facing a serious illness, I have experience with that. So making sure that that is secure for them, mm-hmm. you know you have health insurance. It was. It's not easy to get health insurance as a small business in North Carolina. There's really not a lot of support for it. So I feel really lucky to be able to provide like a decent health insurance plan. Um, I also have a four-day work week, which is not traditional for agency models, um, and unlimited PTO, which is mm-hmm. also not traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I really mean those things. Like I want all of my employees to want to do the work we're doing and also live their life as well. So yeah, a mix of the two. Yeah, the four-day work week and unlimited PTO. I would say I've seen more of the unlimited PTO from companies than I have of the four-day work week. Yeah. And quite frankly, I don't think I've seen the four-day work week. I've seen at best, maybe they'll give you a mental health day every two weeks, like every other Friday or something. Yeah. Or they'll give you, you know, every other Friday you get a half day. Um, so I haven't quite seen the four-day work week, but I do want to talk about the mindset behind really what those two things embody, which is scaling back the time that we spend working. Yeah. Right? And to really, in a lot of ways, increase our ability to be more focused when we do work. Yeah. So a hundred percent. Like I am definitely, I am in my freelance world. I worked all the time. Like I would work nonstop. And so part of it is holding myself accountable too, for having that balance, but also, um, you know, the last two years have changed how people think about their personal and work lives and how can we balance those two instead of having this idea of like, a career having to be your entire life as well, um, waiting for retirement, but maybe we could do things a little bit differently now instead of waiting till that point. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that we are coming to terms with reshaping our career looking like our whole life. Yeah. But I definitely think people in the creator economy have definitely embodied your career being your personality. And I think that is a little, <laughs> that's a little bit tricky. much. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's true. I think that, you know, with social media, there's a fine line between, like, being a creative influencer and having work that you do. And it's also tricky, too, because, like, you know, I do what I do because I really do enjoy it. And where does that line end when I turn off my computer? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that's always hard, too, because sometimes it's like, well, you know, for somebody like me, so I don't actually have a TV, 
So when I do watch things, it's like Netflix or YouTube, either on my computer or on my desktop. So it's like, okay, technically I'm not working, but like, let me just research this little thing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It starts to creep up. Like if I was to add up all those hours, I, I don't know. It probably wouldn't look pretty, but. You'll get like one notification and then, yeah, you're down the rabbit hole. Yeah, literally. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's it gets a little crazy. So with you and the work that you're doing, can you tell us a little bit about the projects that you're excited about? Because I know you work with a lot of environmentally friendly mm-hmm. and eco-friendly like companies. Yeah, so one of um, our biggest clients is Leaf and Limb, and they're a tree care company in Raleigh. Um, I love working with them, and they have a new project called Project Pando, which is a um, wild zone. So they're we're collecting seeds from the wild to grow native trees that more that match the local ecosystem better, and it's a project with TLC in Southeast Raleigh. Um, where they're growing all of these trees, and then they're going to give them away to the public for free. Okay. Um, so it's trying to introduce a more robust... Uh, so it's, you know, a lot of nursery trees, you're just getting a few, like there's some, only a few options. So Project Pando has been really exciting to work on because it's just a whole new model. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also doing some work with Cornell around regenerative agriculture and financing, transition finance for farmers. So like... If farmers are interested in changing their farming practices to be more regenerative, how is that financially feasible? You know, it's a big transition to go from like traditional models to regenerative. And then um, we just have a, also a lot of local nonprofits. So we work with the Polly Murray Center and the Durham Literacy Center and Miracle Feet. And I really... Um, I really like working with nonprofits on the work that they do, especially in the community. So yeah, yeah. Um, so help me understand: Are you B Corps certified? Yeah, I yeah. am B Corps certified. I yeah. did. Yeah, I think I remember seeing that on LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, to my understanding, that process is very long. Um, you do have to pay to be B Corps certified. People, I've talked with other people on this channel about that before. Actually, um, I think I've had two guests that have also been B Corps certified. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I don't really have any questions about it at this point, but for people who may be watching and maybe still have questions like, okay, like you're doing all this work with the environment, like, is that your whole identity now? Like, do you do things outside of work? Like if you weren't working with these organizations, how would you be exhibiting care for the environment? Like, what does that look like outside of the clients that you work with? So, um, I think I definitely, the environmental stuff is important, like, that's definitely, like, we compost at home, like, we hike, we spend a lot of time outside, we really um, care about all of the things that, like, I do the things that I write about and talk about Mm -hmm. um, in my personal life, but um, more so, like, my ongoing work has been connected to the nonprofit work and fundraising Mm -hmm. um, over the years for different community causes, and that's sort of my, like, the personal side that I bring to the work as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so going on to nonprofits, because I also work with nonprofits, and a lot of design and marketing work is around, hey, we need to grow our capacity, we need to grow our fundraising capacity, uh, we need to continue to engage with previous donors, but also like try to find other high-level donors and uh, people who are going to be just ambassadors for the work that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so with you know your work with nonprofits, you know when it comes to developing, you know a digital media campaign or an imprint media campaign for an event that they may be hosting, like their big annual fundraising event. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to 
really approaching how you develop that, how you talk with people about their goals and how you talk with people about where the money is going, how transparent it's going to be, like what are some of the ways that you really, one, define a client that is ready for what they're asking for, yeah, and then also work with them to see it through. So um, when I was talking about some of the fundraising stuff, so I previously... My the fundraising and the design work were completely separated. Okay. When I did things like um, I had done a school lunch debt pay down, and then I helped fundraise around the explosion that happened in Brightleaf, um, and some other community things that happened. But I realized in that process that <laughs> I have I'm really good at raising money, mm. um, and I think it's around framing it through that transparency and authenticity, like being like this is what we're gonna do with the money. You can see the receipts. You can see me doing the work. I'm the person that shows up at the end of the day to do X, Y, Z thing and being accountable around it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's how, um, I also present that with the clients that I work with. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we're gonna, there's not going to be like a fake emergency that we raise money for, you know, (laughs) there's no like sense of urgency. It's like, this is this is like being in community when you're when somebody's choosing to donate that like brings them into that community and how are you going to continue that partnership not just like thanks for the check and bye yeah yeah I think this is probably the first time I've heard of fundraising and being a donor to a nonprofit as a partnership right mm-hmm. typically when we think about partnerships we think about let's say with the East Coast Greenway, who is a nonprofit that I work with, you know, REI, you know, we think about corporate partnerships, partnerships, right? We don't think about, you know, when we talk about political campaigns, you know, then we talk about, oh, well, they had, you know, so many donors and the average donation was $13 or something. Right. So then you start to think about it as, oh, okay, this is an everyday person donating to you and they really are invested in your, you know, campaign and the work that you're doing for this specific reason or whatever, you know, but when it comes to nonprofits, it's like, well, this is what the community is supposed to do. It's supposed to show up for you and, and then just be there when you, you need it. Um, if they are, you know, at all care about the cause that you're working on and that sort of right. thing, right? Yeah. But you don't think about them maybe when you're not fundraising or maybe after they've given, like, what does it mean to continue to nurture that partnership and include their voices to the table? Yeah. Um, so what does that look like for you in terms of fundraising? I think um, it's probably my background as an activist, but I'm always like more interested in the the stakeholder, so the um, the donor or whoever, and and how it benefits them versus the like end result at the company, mm-hmm. because those are the you know your community and that partnership that you're building. Like yes, brand partnerships, strategic partnerships, those are all really important, but those are the people that are gonna you know at the end of the day, say, you know, this organization is doing really great work and this is how I'm involved and how you can be involved. Or if it's uh, like a product business, like this is a company whose services or products are really great. Mm -hmm. Like that more authentic person-to-person recommendation where you've like created a community, Mm -hmm. um, I think is much more effective in the long run because those are the people who are really going to stand up and say, like, no, I believe in this cause or I believe in this work mm-hmm. instead of, um, you know, just writing a check at the end of the day. Because, you know, I think part of fundraising is definitely the money piece, but it's also, like, the it's like the movement-making piece as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think in a lot of ways, 
movement justice or movement journalism has really found its naming first and foremost throughout this pandemic mm-hmm. uh, because in large part of the George Floyd right. situation happening. So yeah. people are like, oh no, this isn't a moment, it's a movement, you know, and people starting to reframe, you know, okay, if you're giving to XYZ organization, it's not going for this particular thing. This has already happened. It's going towards right. this and everything else. In the right. Future. Right. And so and that's kind of similar to nonprofits where we're not only seeing campaigns for each year where maybe they're changing the name each year, but they're like, no, we're sticking to one thing that's evergreen. Right. And then we may have other smaller campaigns here for different things that arise, but the goal is always this one thing. Right. Yeah. And working towards that. Um, and so in terms of, I guess like you've been in the design space for a really long time, and in mm-hmm. terms of seeing how that space in and of itself has grown and developed and, you know, your own taste in design has grown and developed and the people that you've worked with and the companies that, you know, the relationships that you have with the organization that you work with has grown and developed and changed over time. Like, what are some trends that you have really enjoyed seeing coming out of that? Because I feel like we only hear the negative right now. Negative trends? What do you mean by, like... Negative trends in terms of, like, organizations not wanting to pay people or still wanting to pay people on exposure or treating influencers or the organizations or freelancers that they work with as kind of, like you're here to do this one thing and then I'm going to pay you and you're going to, I'm going to pay you on my own terms and then I'm going to leave. And it's not like, no, like not only are you paying me to do something, but I'm also needing to get something out of this. It needs to be more of a collaborative effort. Collaborative not a, effort. Yeah. yeah. I do think, um, I think it's a, like, it's a shift in both businesses being more accountable and um, particularly like women in the creative industry just asking for their value. Yeah. I am super lucky to be part of this community of just like incredible, it's a consultancy group. And one of the most amazing things is like always being like, no, you are worth as like, there's pay transparency in the group for how much people get paid for certain projects. And it's like, no, you can ask for that. It's totally is worth your, I love the saying, um, they're not paying for your hours, but paying for your years. And that always shifts the conversation around yeah. value. Um, and it be and then when you come to the table and you're confident and you say, like, this is what I'm worth, this is what I can do, this is my experience, then it is a totally different it isn't like somebody's just paying you for an hourly rate. But it's really hard to do that. Like yeah. I say that and it is hard to consistently do it because one, you'll lose clients and sometimes, you know, you need to pay bills. And two it just gets really tiring to have to keep saying, like, no, I'm worth this thing, that, like, somebody else would just get paid without even having to ask. Yeah, I feel like definitely, especially in these last six months, that's something I've gotten better at standing in, like, when people Mm -hmm. come to me. And part of it is me also thinking, like, maybe I need to not necessarily rebrand, but, like, update my messaging because Mm -hmm. then, you know, people, you know, I've reached a point where I've had a, a little bit of success at this point, and so people are like, oh, okay, cool, can you, like, hold this baby for me. Right. And you're like, you want me to do this? Like, okay, here's my rate to hold this baby if you want my years of experience and my expertise. And they're like, right. what, you want how much to hold this baby? And it's like, yeah, that's what I want. Like, yeah. if you just want some baby to, like, change the diaper, then you can go get somebody to change, change the, diaper. the diaper. But yeah. if you want me to hold it and do the whole raising of this child, <laughs> then, like, I need to be paid accordingly. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. these are my rates for that. And so, like, standing in that when people maybe sometimes have that sticker shock, like, that can also be hard. I think just that like initial like pushback that you're inevitably going to get at some point. And it's also 
kind of lets me know that I'm doing the right thing because if yeah. everybody's just saying yes, then like your rates aren't high. <laughs> like, yeah, and I get conflicted because I, I am also like a problem solver. So I want to help everyone depending even whatever their rates are. But organizations and, and companies will always, if they value what you do, they'll meet you at your rate. Yeah. If they're saying, I want XYZ discount or you cost too much, it just means they don't value the work you're going to do. And if they don't value you, you can't, the work isn't going to be great. So, yeah. yeah. It also comes to like scoping out the project. So sometimes people will think like, oh, I want this, this, and this. And you're like, okay, well, that's what this is and this cost. Right. They're like, okay, well, maybe we could actually do some work in this. And I yeah. also think that's also a good thing. Because then it's not like, oh, we're just giving you this project to do. But, like, no, we are in the boots with you, right? And not expecting you to know everything and, like, fight to find out certain things. So when it comes to, like, branding or developing a campaign, it's like that company or organization needs to have some say-so in that, too. You know, it's their message that you're trying to translate for people. Like, that shouldn't be solely your, you know, designer's or agency's job. Yeah, it should always be a collaboration and... Yeah, also, yeah, I think the negotiation can be around scope. Like, you wanted everything, but maybe if we start with this piece, then then we can move further from there. But, yeah. Yeah. It is always a tricky conversation. It is. It is. (laughs) But it's, like, it's good that you're having, like, pay transparency because I feel like that is something that stops people. Maybe they will ask for something, but they don't know that they're undercutting themselves by, like, a lot or something. And I feel like that was definitely something that has helped to me, like people who have been willing to either share budgets for film projects or talk about like, hey, you did that for this. You know, what were the conditions under which you did it for X, Y, Z price or whatever? Mm -hmm. And I think that's also important too. sometimes people throw out numbers for like what they got paid for something, but they're not telling you the scope of work, like everything that they did to justify that number. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... um, it's always surprising, too, if I find out, like, I've collaborated on a project and then find out, like, how much another person got paid on the project. And I'm like, oh, wow, I totally undervalued mm-hmm. myself. So, yeah, it's just consistently, yeah, standing in that, showing up confident and being like, this is this is the proposal, and then being quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Letting that silence linger, is, it's, it's interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm still getting used to it and just also accepting that like sometimes no answer is also an answer and just like moving on so it's just like once I've done my part like I'm good yeah I think it's also important too like you know not every client is a good fit and that is a really hard again as a problem solver I'm like even if we aren't a good fit here are 15 things you could do and I'm like why did I just say that (laughs) um but not every client's a good fit and that's totally okay like Mm -hmm. sometimes I'll, I do, um, like free consult calls and I'll say up front, like, we're going to talk and maybe we won't be a good fit and I'll recommend somebody else for you. And that's totally fine. Like yeah. being super transparent, like it's okay if you don't want to work with me and it's okay if I don't want to work with you Yeah. at the end of the day too. I definitely said that in email. Definitely. <laughs> but that's also when I know I'm probably like, yeah, this isn't a good fit. Right. <laughs> so maybe this is just myself looking out for future self. Like, there you yeah, go. I don't know if this is going to work out. <laughs> I don't know. At some point, I don't know. I just, like, like I said, probably within the last six months, I'm just like, yeah, it is what it is. Like, I'm just not playing this game anymore. Um, we all deserve to be happy and make money, and that may not mean what it used to mean to me. 
Yeah, it's true. I was thinking about that. Um, or who was I talking about the other day? Like my idea of what success was mm. maybe even five years ago. Like I want to be on the cover of whatever XYZ design magazine versus like, no, I want to have a day where I get to choose what I do and have impact and, you know, maybe pick my kids up from school and make dinner. Like that is, that feels like success much more than like having a title or an award or anything like that yeah I one thing I would say like that came to my attention when somebody asked me was like this notion of like time freedom like that's the real success it's like whatever amount of money or clients or whatever allow me to have time freedom right to do the things that I want to do and whatever that means at whatever time in my life um and sometimes that just looks different sometimes time freedom means like if I want to go on a bike ride at 9 a.m and not be on meetings all day like that's that's a beautiful thing to me um yeah, and the creative process, like, it takes time. Yeah. Sometimes it happens, you know, you know the solution as you're, like, hearing a client talk, and sometimes you just need to, like, go for a walk or stare at a wall or go on a bike ride, mm-hmm. like, do another thing before it comes to you, and that's, um, if you always are, like, super tight on time, that gets really hard to do, too. Yeah. Yeah. As a designer, so we're talking about, you know, getting out of that space like do you have this nicely curated home office that you like constantly reconstruct every six months or no no I don't so early on in the pandemic so I have nine-year-old twins okay and we were homeschooling them and my husband and I were sharing an office that was about was not big it's about the size of the space and so and we were on zoom all the time so we were having to negotiate like who has the office when and then we switched up a music room and put an office up there and then I was in the basement and it's like this ever evolving thing of being like what is it's like who's upstairs and who's downstairs who gets light and who doesn't but we actually just moved into like a small space but I feel like I don't know that I'm very excited to be working out of the house again but I don't know that I um I think I like switching up my space a lot when I have to be in the same place on zoom for eight hours a day for an entire week I'm just like I have no idea what happened yeah (laughs) you know yeah it just gets too similar okay yeah Yeah. so basically she changes every six months (laughs) I guess I do change every six months just not the physical like it's usually just like my laptop in a different place (laughs) yeah Uh, so what is your creative design process like do you have a way that you get inspired or have certain things that inspire you Oh, wow. That's a big question. I, um, a couple of things. One, which I obviously haven't done for a long time. I really, I get inspired a lot, um, traveling. Mm. And I think it's because I get in this mode where I'm like in a different, I'm not in my like to-do list mode. I'm in my experiencing mode Mm -hmm. when I'm traveling. But I also get inspired a lot by just asking people questions all the time like when you know lockdown was happening if the like FedEx guy would come too close to the house and be like hey how are you how's your day what are you doing like it would just be too too much so like I definitely like just asking you know talking to other people learning about their lives and all of that in terms of like literal design I um I love color so I spend a lot of time like looking at color swatches and color palettes and thinking about how color interacts and works together. 
um, and just being inspired by other designers' work as well. Mm-hmm. I get inspired by designers' work mostly because it's something I can't do. I feel like yeah. photos, I still get inspired by photos and some of my favorite photographers' videos. I would honestly say very rarely do I get inspired by other videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, but designers, I don't know. There's just something about it. Like typography will never be my strong suit. So seeing other people who can just like master that and manipulate that and different color palettes and different modes and different color schemes to make like landing pages, palettes, you know, graphics, illustrations, typography-based graphics. Like to me, that just like, mm. Is that because when you're watching a video, you like know all of the behind the scenes pieces? I don't know, man. I don't know. (laughs) I I sometimes can do that with design. Like I know the process or I know what was like behind it and, um, and that can get in the way. Like I overthink it. So Mm. I don't know if that was, I don't know. With videos, it's just like, I don't know. I think it just takes time for me to really feel like, man, that just like, I just suck my teeth in that. Like, I'm definitely a person, like, I watch more series than I do films, like, mm-hmm. feature films or, like, what people would call, like, movies. Um, because, I don't know, just something about the character development and just all the different pieces that have to come together for me to really be like, man, this is good. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And it's so rare. I feel like most of the videos, some of my own even maybe, that it's just like, okay, this is a video or this is a short film and this is great, but it's not, like... Something that I'm like, yeah, I want to recreate that in my own way, you um, know? I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. Yeah. 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 I don't know. It's just the whole experience of, of the film, you know, that, yeah. that has to, like, pull me in. And that just so rarely happens, I feel like. When you see it. Yeah. yeah. You need to be part of the whole process. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. But design is like, I have no idea what they did, but I love it. I think this is great. I can never recreate this, but I'm going <laughs> to. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I feel that way about um, some video and, like, visual art as well. Like, not just design, but some documentary work. And um, do you know the artist Andy Goldsworthy, who does the, like, environmental installations? I've heard their names. It's all, like, temporary. Like, he'll build, like, an ice sculpture, and then it'll melt. But I love... um, There's a documentary about him that is really beautiful. Okay. That has a lot to do with, like, color and design and shape and form and... Um, yeah, that's good. That's cool. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like sculpting in general is just such a, like, niche art form. Like, I don't know. They're all niche, I guess, if you think about it. But it's just, like, an art form that not a lot of people do, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. Like, that. I feel like there's definitely far more painters that we know of than sculptors. That's true. You know? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. So when it comes to people who are niching, because I know you do some work with branding and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, and people... We haven't talked about it on this show yet, but I do think it's important for people who are watching and who are maybe they're starting a business, early stage in their business, maybe thinking about rebranding, mm-hmm. maybe thinking about is the brand that I created serving me and serving the purpose that I wanted to. Um, there's definitely a conversation to be had around niching. Yeah. And that can be, in my opinion, to your detriment or to your advantage, right? Depending on how you define your niche and how well you actually stick to it. Um, and when it changes, how you change with it, right, in terms of communicating that. Um, so what are some of the ways that, or some advice that you would have for people who are, like, maybe thinking about, thinking critically about branding, which is only one part of your business, let's just mm-hmm. be clear, and only one fart, of, one fart, Jesus Christ, one fart, <laughs> <laughs> one fart of, one part that informs your marketing, you yeah. know. Um, you know, what advice would you have for people who are thinking about, 
niching down or niching up or approaching niching in general and yeah. using all that they are as a person to inform their brand. I think niching is, is actually really important. I just had this conversation this week. Um, I think it's really important and it's terrifying yeah. at the same time. Um, I, and it's also not a fixed thing. Like if I'm talking about um, what I do, I specifically, I often talk about regenerative ag or insects or trees or soil, like something around this environmental focused ecology biology thing that we've been doing lately. Um, but I do so many other things. But the benefit of, you know, continuously talking about those specific things, that's sort of where we want to go and grow. So if somebody, another um, freelancer or designer hears somebody saying like, oh, there's this soil project, people are like, oh, Rebecca knows about soil food webs. She'd be great to work on this project. Mm -hmm. So I think it really helps um, with referrals and identifying you as like a specific thing. Mm -hmm. Like this is, um, I really like bugs. I would love to work on a bugs project. So I talk about it all the time and that like, you know, maybe that will happen at some point. Um, it is a little scary cause I obviously as a creative, I like having variety. So I don't want to say like, I only talk about soil every day, all day, but, um, but it, so it can evolve, like whatever, you know, websites aren't fixed, um, messaging isn't fixed, networking isn't fixed. So if you are, uh, have, you know, reached a point where you feel like you want to move on to another thing, you can always change that. Um, and just because I say I'm working on like one specific project, it, like I said, there's other things I'm working on for variety, but also like a client that I have will refer me to another thing. And if it's an interest... Um, in the studio, we all sort of agree on the projects that we have, um, then, then we'll pursue that project. Um, but it's more about like what I'm using to market what I do versus like what we actually take in. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a balance. Yeah. Um, and just thinking about where, yeah, where I want to grow and where we want to go as a studio, talking about those things versus projects that we already have or maybe we don't enjoy or things like that yeah or enjoy less we like most things we do that's good <laughs> that's a good place <laughs> most to be most of the time yeah. yeah I would say like going to that conversation like it wasn't something that I was told per se early on you know they didn't always say like find your niche it was like you know what do you focus on or what are your right. what's your target audience you know what I'm saying like they would use other words so the word to define that has changed over time as well yeah and then too especially when you start to think about diversifying income streams and especially YouTube that's when it starts to kind of get a little bit hairy at least for me because then it was like okay well how do I know what people want to watch from me how do I know what videos I enjoy making unless I make them right um and the same thing with just starting out it's like how do you know what types of photography or design you like until you start doing it and what organizations you want to work with and so it kind of takes time to find that so I don't want people to feel pressure out of the gate to feel the need to like hone in on this one thing and box yourself in in terms of marketing yeah. um, and being known for this one main thing but also like on the back end it also kind of helps because at least you are getting what you do want right, right? Yeah. and everything outside of that that may be different is extra and it's nice and you have the your pick of the litter in terms of what you can work on right so that's nice yeah I mean I think it is 
especially if you're just starting out and you don't know that, it is a little intimidating. But I think that's too the thing about it being evolving and changing. If you're like, I did XYZ kind of website, I don't want to do that anymore. Just like take that off your website <laughs> for your, or your promotion. Or like, um, I love doing email marketing. I don't talk about it that much in my, I do a lot of it. Okay. I know way too much about email, <laughs> data and systems, but, um, but I don't talk about it because we have a lot of that work. So, um, and I know that we can, can grow that work too. So, yeah. Yeah. I feel like email, email made a good comeback. Email and QR codes. Yeah. Like QR codes were <laughs> like, I don't know, in 2004, five. No, maybe later than that. I was at Parsons for a little bit, and QR codes was, like, the whole thing. But nobody knew how to use it because it wasn't in your... You had to, like, download an app right. for a QR code. Um, and... Um, the and so, But now having it on menus and things like that means that it's actually yeah. user-friendly. And it's in your phone. Yeah, so now that when you go to, like, take a picture, it will scan the QR code. So you don't need an app anymore. So yeah. that did help it out. But again, not a lot of people probably even knew that before the pandemic, yeah. so I don't know. Yeah, I feel like having it be things like menus in restaurants that were like highly functional, people use them. I don't, I don't think many people are like, oh, let's go up to that poster over there and scan that QR code. <laughs> but, um, but it helps with some um, like messaging work in the field that I've done. So yeah, yeah, it is. It is nice that it exists because also nobody wants to like stand on your phone and type in like a yeah. fifty character URL. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, well, I think that's a great note to end on. Can you tell people how to find you aside from Twitter if you don't want them to see your Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> I've been cleaning up my Twitter. I'm um, being a little bit more, trying to focus more on like design. Although I do get snarky still, <laughs> especially anything to do with Durham that gets really. But, um, so I, so you can find me on my website is mieldesignstudio.com, which is M as in Mary, I-E-L. Sometimes it sounds like I say meow. <laughs> oh, um, and then on Instagram at mieldesignstudio and under Rebecca Miel on LinkedIn. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. This was great.